Hello everyone. After a long time, the Live and Dare podcast is back with one more episode. And it's because we have a very special guest today, Dr. Rick Hansen, PhD. I was not doing any more episodes for the Live and Dare podcast for nearly two years. But then I met Dr. Rick. I thought he would be a great guest for this episode. So I decided to kind of resurrect the podcast just to have him on. I will now read his bio and then the interview will begin. Please enjoy, practice the insights that you learn and share it. Thank you. Rick Hansen, PhD, is a psychologist, senior fellow at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, a New York Times bestselling author. His books include Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nature, and are available in 28 languages. Rick is the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, and has been invited to speak at Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, and other major universities. In 2016, he gave a keynote address at the annual meeting of the American Psychological Association. Rick's work has been featured on the BBC, CBS, NPR, and other major media. His online Foundations of Wellbeing program helps people use positive neuroplasticity to grow inner strengths like resilience, self-worth, and compassion, and anyone with financial need can do it for free. Dr. Hansen has spent decades helping people turn everyday experiences into lasting happiness, love, and inner peace. Thank you very much for being here. Giovanni, it's a pleasure. And by the way, if I mispronounce your name, please correct me. No, that's that's fine. I've read quite a bit about your work. And one thing that I didn't see much is how did you get into mindfulness? I would like to hear a little bit more about your story. How did mindfulness meditation or spirituality enter in your life and begin to occupy such a, a huge um, part of who you are in your work. Well, thank you. Well, I'll try to keep it really short. Um, I think a real beginning of it was the experience I had as a little boy, and I think it's an experience that actually many people have when they're young children, in which they know things that they cannot put into words. But if you look back, almost like the wallpaper of your memories, in the background of your memories are certain feelings or certain knowings. And in the wallpaper of my own earliest memories was the very clear knowing and sense of that there was so much unnecessary unhappiness around me. And I grew up in a okay environment in Los Angeles in America, not horrible, but I could feel around me the other kids or the grown-ups or the grown-ups with the kids there was a lot of unnecessary stress, tension, criticism, conflict, worry. And I wondered why. And I didn't know the answer to it, but I knew that I wanted to find the answer. And that pretty much set me on my way. 
Uh, I looked for different kinds of answers as a teenager and then when I went to college and I was young when I went to college and it was at the beginning of the human potential movement. So I was introduced to humanistic psychology and a lot of powerful experiences. But I did only at the very end of my college year in 1974, the spring of 1974, I started to explore Eastern philosophy and spirituality. And that's where I learned about meditation, which of course exists in the West. If you think of Western traditions like like uh, Judaism or Christianity or Islam, there obviously are meditations in them and there are meditations also found in secular traditions. But my introduction to this was mainly through Buddhism, which immediately made sense to me as an accurate description of both the mind and matter. Mm-hmm. both the mental reality and the physical reality. Um, and so that began my journey. I started meditating in 1974, and uh, that was my introduction to mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness, of course, is also very much involved in psychology and psychotherapy, self in, in the sense of self-awareness, and or what's called the observing ego, or being able to, the witness position, being able to step back and open to your experience fully while not being swept away by it, mm-hmm. which would be a way of describing mindfulness as it's directed internally. Uh, so that was my introduction, and 1974 is a long time ago. There have been a lot of zigs and zags since then, uh, including uh, integrating my interest in psychology and, and spirituality, increasingly with my interest in uh, neuroscience, especially the last 20 years or so. And a lot of what I do is work, in effect, at the center of three circles of psychology, neuroscience, and contemplative practice. And it's at the center of those three circles, at the intersection, really, of of those three circles, that many, many wonderful things can be found. Yes. Was there a particular book or teacher that was very influential for your first years of, of search? Yeah, that's a great question. Aldous Huxley and his book, The Perennial Philosophy, about the common aspects uh, across all the world's spiritual traditions, that was powerful. To realize that there's there's one fundamental truth, because there's one ultimate reality. There are many descriptions that, that stand on their own, but there's there's a single moon that those multiple fingers are pointing at, to use the Zen. And then uh, another book that uh, I guess had a lot of influence on me uh, were uh, books from Zen, Zen Buddhism, Suzuki Roshi, uh, Beginner's Mind. Classic. uh, Three Pillars of Classics. Yeah, the classics. We're talking things I was reading in 1974. Uh, Those had an influence on me. And I was also, I would say, very influenced by human potential teachers like uh, in humanistic psychology, Carl Rogers, uh, talking about unconditional positive regard and and presence. Those those were really powerful for me. Yeah. So one of the books, uh, one of your works is called The Neurodharma of Love. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really, it's a really important topic to try to apply the teachings from contemplative traditions in the way we relate in our intimate relationships because that's arguably one of the areas of strongest challenges. It's perhaps harder to 
to be truly mindful and to be our best self and to really apply these teachings of meditation and contemplative traditions in our intimate relationship in a consistent manner than in many other areas of, your, of our lives. Yes. So in your experience as a clinical psychologist and researcher, what would you say are the key elements of a fulfilling intimate relationship? Wow. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot right <laughs> Well, first, just uh, one of the elements of a relationship is honesty. And I want to be honest with you about myself as a quote-unquote researcher. I, I do actually very little research. I do a lot of what I think could be fairly described as scholarship, in which I, I consume and understand a tremendous amount of research, but um, do studies myself. I do, I'm not a professor somewhere. I just want to be clear with people. Yes. Uh, but that said, in terms of the question itself, in addition to honesty, well, I think first it depends on the kind of relationship. So let's take you and me. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a relationship. We are not married. We are not longtime friends. We have a particular kind of relationship. And yet in this relationship, I think right here, right now, uh, there are opportunities to to see what is fundamental and important. So I think about, uh, to begin with, the framework from Martin Buber, the I and Thou framework. So he describes three kinds of relationships, as you know. Yes. I'll just say them briefly for everyone. Uh, one is an I-Thou relationship. The second type is I-It. And the third type is It-It. And this is a very powerful idea because it, it means that in an I-thou relationship, both people respect each other and they are not trying to turn each other into objects that are means to their own ends. So even though you and I have a somewhat limited relationship in our history, in this moment, I am not trying to exploit you mm -hmm. and I have an ongoing sense of the being behind your eyes. I can feel that you too are relating to me in that way. And it's interesting to note that we can feel very quickly when other people are itting us, when they are turning us into its for their I. The second kind of relationship is I-it, where uh, we use people sometimes appropriately as a immediate means to our ends. Maybe we're tired and we're just getting to a hotel late at night and we have to check in and mm -hmm. we just want to get the job done and get our keys and go to our room. All right, in that moment, the other person is more of an it to us. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily harming them, but it's a yellow flag. Or uh, maybe somebody is just a, a stranger on the street and they need a quick direction. Hey, which way for the pizza place? <laughs> and you just go out there to the left and boom, you're done. That's all. But Many times uh, when others treat us like an it, we feel that they are not caring about us. Maybe they're just trying to sell us something and maybe they're acting like we are a thou, but actually they just want to get it. They just want us to make, to buy the car yeah. or the idea that they're selling politically, but they're not, they don't really care about us. And then there's the relationship structure of it, it like just bodies in space, walking past each other, say, on a busy city street or standing side by side mm -hmm. in an elevator. So to 
make the point here, I think that one of the foundations of a, a really, really healthy, even profound relationships is to uh, keep vowing the other person and to stand up for yourself when you feel itted by other people. Um, that's very fundamental to me. Yeah. I think another thing I would just mention, or do you want to comment right there? I like this framework as a way of training and practicing because yeah. it invites us to first be constantly self-aware, Yes. which is a big part of what mindfulness is about, is awareness. Yeah. So awareness of, am I Am I being an it to the other person or am I eating the other person? Yeah. And then when we notice, then to make that conscious choice of letting go of the ego, moving yes. away from the ego into a more kind of shared space. Yeah. So in this simple framework, you have both the practice of awareness and compassion in a way. Mm. Well, Giovanni, very, very beautiful, very wise, very true. I think that's really true. I would add one more thing at least. Um, I think it's not enough to live in the I-thou frame with mindfulness. I've actually known people in the human potential scene who really, really, really are in the I-thou frame. And simultaneously, their behavior is really a problem. And we actually have many examples where uh, people abuse the I-thou frame because they do, they do not have regulation of their behavior. So, or, or more differently, sometimes two people can be treating each other genuinely as a thou, and they have to negotiate around a problem. They have to decide how to raise their children together. Maybe they have sincere disagreements. Uh, and what do you do? So for me, there's a second thing that's very important here, which is about expressing what you want yeah. and listening to the wants of the other person and negotiating or problem solving when there are issues and doing that in um, skillful ways. That may not be immediately obvious just by thinking of the other person as a thou uh, does not necessarily mean that you know how to stand up for yourself. And for example, I've known people they often are, are women in heterosexual relationships, just to generalize, but I think you can see the generalization I'm referring to. They have such a strong feeling that their partner or their children is a thou that it's difficult for them. They don't know how to stand up for their own needs. And over time, they get um, worn out as a result. So I think another second thing here I would stress is the importance of of being prepared to skillfully assert yourself. That's what I call the strong heart. Maybe that's a nice way to sum up what I'm saying, mm -hmm. where you're able to be both compassionate, loving, and kind, etc., while also you're able to be firm and clear and serious about what you need. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the middle path here is the, <laughs> is the correct metaphor. As usual. Too much compassion and you'll be a really nice person, but uh, you end up with regrets some time in your life. That's right. Too much self-assertion and nobody wants to be around you. Yes, exactly right. Do you still work as a clinical psychologist? Do you see, still see patients? Yes. Okay. And I would assume that mindfulness and meditation is one of the tools that you present to your patients 
Am I right? Sometimes. Some people, the, the issue at hand is not really centrally addressed by mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And also, it could be a person who is really not going to meditate. And so what else do you do? The nature of psychotherapy is very respectful. Uh, not all therapists, unfortunately, live by that standard. But the nature of it is to not be pushy as a therapist. And so you have to be a little careful mm -hmm. as a professional therapist with a license that you don't push a method, including a method that in some circles has a religious connotation to it, uh, ways that mindfulness can be associated with Buddhism, for example. And so I'm a little careful about that. But that said, oh boy, if I could get my clients to have a regular mindfulness practice uh, and regular meditation, I think that would be, in many cases, 50% of the cure. Mm -hmm. Just that alone. Being able to step back from the movie, witness it without being swept away by it, uh, that is half the journey right there. Yeah. For your clients that do meditate, yeah. have you found that having a practice of meditation has kind of automatically brought that balance that we we're talking about between healthy self-expression and compassion and presence to the other? Or did they still need to consciously bring the tools of mindfulness into that part of their life? What I have observed is the second thing. Mm. I think there are unusual examples of individuals who have a deep, deep meditative practice, often many hours a day, and as a result of that alone, there is a profound transformation of their heart. Mm -hmm. Those people do exist, I think that's true. On the other hand, for most people, if they do 20 to 40 minutes a day of meditation, which, by the way, probably puts that person in the upper 10% of people who might say, are you a meditator? So, for example, I'll tell you a little joke here, a little story, true story. I think you might have been there when I did this. Uh, if you ask people how many people do something contemplative, including prayer, something meditative, a minute or more a month, you'll see most people will, will say, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah. They do something deliberately contemplative. But of that group, if you were to ask them, all right, how many of you uh, meditate every day? Most of the hands will go down. And then if you say, how many of you meditate more than 20 minutes every day? Very few people. So if a person is meditating 10 to 20 minutes a day, Regularly, they're in the top 10% probably of people who meditate at all, which is probably in the top 10% of the whole population. So ballpark, we're talking about 1% of the population. Even them, even them who are way up there in having a genuine, real practice uh, are often if really uh, upset in their relationships. Uh, they don't know how to get what they need or maybe they're, they are in an okay relationship, it's okay, but it's not great, or it's okay with their child, but there's still a lot of conflict, or they're still really nervous around their boss, et cetera. So it's, we, we need more than just one thing. And I think that uh, it's like anything, we need more than one kind of food. We need a balanced diet, and in the same way, 
I think that one of the uh, bad things that's happened in many spiritual circles in my lifetime is that uh, various teachers uh, have said that everything is about one thing. Yeah. Just, just realize that God lives in your heart and that's all you need. Hmm. Well, that's a wonderful thing, but is that really all most people need? Or just do this mantra every day for 10 minutes. Well, or just do yoga 10 minutes or just do, just do a yoga yeah. set 40 minutes a day. You'll be fine. No, <laughs> you need more than that. So that was a long answer to a short question. But to me, what you're getting at is incredibly important. Yeah. It needs to bring strong practice. And part of what informs me about that is a recognition of our deeply animal nature. We need a strong practice to address our deeply animal nature mm -hmm. and to address also the ways that most people today live in a very unnatural way. Uh, the good news is that we have refrigerators and ibuprofen, but the bad news is that most people live in isolation and spend many hours a day working that are many that are unnatural and they're exposed to a lot of stresses and are flooded with stimulation from media. So uh, the greater the challenges, the, the, the stronger the resources must be. What do you think about my rant here? I hope I didn't go on too long. No, I, I actually saw that a lot. If we're not paying close attention and if, you're not, if we don't have the deliberate intention of bringing certain meditation skills to other areas of our lives, it can very much become compartmentalized. Yes. We learn all these skills in meditation and maybe our practice is at a level that when we sit, it feels great. We feel peace, we feel joy. But then how to really apply all of that in other areas of your life, then you need to pay attention. You need to remember when you're in a conflict or when you are facing a difficult emotion, you need to remember and you need to bring in the meditation state to that moment. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. That's one reason why I love your book, Practical Meditation, uh, because you really do bring in so many different ways to meditate and you also emphasize ways to apply the benefits of meditation to other parts of your life. Yes. Um, now this, this question is a bit of a tough one. Ah. Behind many of the conflicts and difficulties in relationships, we find our blind spots. Yeah. Right? They are parts of our personality which we are usually unable to see on our own and much less to really own and to consciously work with it in an effective way. And a lot of these blind spots may be related to childhood trauma. So for those listeners who struggle with the effects of childhood trauma, what type of practices would you recommend? How would you start working with it? Yes. Yes, that's really excellent. Well, thinking quickly about this deep question, I would say first, in no particular order, but I'll tell you my top three or four suggestions. One is to train in concentration, mm -hmm. train in steadiness of mind, because the challenge is that as we open to our experience through mindfulness, all, all kinds of stuff starts bubbling up from the basement. 
and it's very easy to get hijacked by that material. So simply training in concentration, in, in the sense of uh, being able to apply attention to a particular object of attention, such as the sensations of breathing at the upper lip, something as sort of boring as that, and to stay there, breath after breath after breath, 10 breaths in a row, 100 breaths in a row, that builds up the muscle of concentration power. And by the way, there's a lovely traditional metaphor, you may know it, uh, the idea, the, the metaphor is that we begin uh, when we find ourselves in the middle of a forest of suffering. And in the distance, we see mountains that represent happiness and profound inner peace. What do we do? Well, first, we need to cut a path through the forest to the mountain. We do not need to cut down the whole forest. That's good news. <laughs> we just need to cut a path to the mountain. The second point is that if we have only a razor blade, it is very sharp, but it does not have power. On the other hand, if we have a stick, it is powerful, but it is blunt. It will not cut a path. But if we combine the sharpness of the razor blade with the power of the stick, let's say a sharp machete, then we can cut our way through the forest. And vipassana, insight, is like the sharp razor blade, and shamatha, Concentration is like the power of the stick. We need both together. And one of the things that has struck me in the contemplative field is that many, many teachers jump too quickly past the training and concentration, mm -hmm. the development of that stick. And that's a very important thing for people to develop, especially if their attention tends to be jumpy, yeah. which is one of the results of trauma. Uh, and also, uh, it's important to develop that concentration power if you uh, are vulnerable to being hijacked by that traumatic material. So that would be my first strong suggestion. Such a good metaphor. Okay, yeah, it's a beautiful traditional metaphor. Um, my second suggestion is to um, cultivate. Uh, basically, the mind takes its shape from what it rests upon. And that's a traditional saying that you know. And uh, the modern update of that from what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity is that your brain literally changes its structure and function based upon what you repeatedly rest your attention on, for good or for bad, for better or worse. So if you repeatedly rest your attention on self-criticism, you will grow self-criticism inside your brain. You will grow the neural circuits mm -hmm. in effect self-criticism. On the other hand, if you rest your attention on self-compassion, that will grow inside you in terms of its physical basis. Uh, as both a trait you will develop over time, and as you build up the trait of self-compassion, you will be able then to, to reach down into that trait and have states of self-compassion, which will increasingly automatically come forward for you. So, with that as a general principle, but my second suggestion would be to uh, meditate on self-compassion. Take self-compassion as your object of meditation. Instead of focusing on the sensations of breathing at your lip or at your heart, focus on warm feelings of caring for yourself. Maybe also with body sensations, like the sense of the breath moving in and out of the heart, to grow that resource as well. That's a a very important resource to build up uh, to deal for people who have trauma. Yeah.
And how would you recommend people to trigger that feeling? Of self-compassion? Yes. Often these people are the ones that most struggle to generate a feeling of self-compassion or loving kindness. It feels artificial for them. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, from a practical standpoint, as, as you know, there are programs now like Mindful Self-Compassion, an eight-week program, just to literally take a program or mm -hmm. uh, listen to uh, audio meditations from people who teach self-compassion in a structured way. It's interesting that people routinely think about getting good at all kinds of silly stuff like playing tennis better or learning how to drive a stick shift in a car, but they won't <laughs> focus on getting good at uh, self-compassion mm -hmm. or getting good at uh, self-worth, for example. And these are things to try to get good at. So that would be one thing. Another is there are basically two major pathways into self-compassion. Uh, one is through feeling cared about by others mm -hmm. and look for opportunities, including in small ways in your daily life to experience and then slow down and take into yourself uh, friendliness from other people, respect from other people, the, the, any kind of small feeling that you actually matter to, that, to another person, that you are a thou to them in some real way, even if it's a small way. Uh, that internalizing again and again of being cared about from others will tend to build up the resource inside you of being caring toward yourself the other thing to do is to focus on times when you are caring, when you are compassionate or loving or friendly or, or helpful for other people. What does that feel like for those warm feelings to flow out of you? And there too, you can focus on those experiences you are already having and then help them sink in. And so what happens then is you build up naturally in the way I'm describing. And by, especially if you do it five or ten times a day. Yeah. You know, for a breath or two or three. It's not a long time that you do this, but five or ten times a day really, really adds up. Mm -hmm. You start to grow the trait of warm-heartedness inside yourself. And then uh, what you could do, now that you've grown that trait increasingly, is apply it to yourself. Think about yourself as, as, an, as someone who carries burdens, someone who... It's like others. Uh, Christopher Germer talks about common humanity. He's one of the great self-compassion teachers. To realize, to think about a different person who's just like you, who carries burdens, who was harmed when you were young, when that person was young, how would you feel about that person? Yeah. You would have warmth for them. You would have respect for them. You would not be mean toward them. Yeah. And then you think, okay, can I bring that same attitude toward myself? I'll be blunt. Uh, one thing that's happened in my long personal journey, I think really I've become a lot more loving as the years have gone by. And also, I've just come to see, Giovanni, that again and again and again, the issue really deep down is lack of effort. Hmm. And I want to be clear, I'm not trying to blame the victim, quote unquote, but if people, real question, ask yourself, are, how, much, how many minutes a day are you giving to your actual practice of, of growth and healing and learning? Are you giving it really 30 to 60 minutes a day? In other words, if you have a trauma history, 
and you're not happy, how many minutes a day are you spending to practice in some form of skillful practice, in some form of trying to help yourself, reading about what's happened to you, studying the issue, and especially focusing on the experiences, having the experiences that are the antidote to uh, your wounds, that are the medicine for your wounds, or the medicine for what's missing in your heart. How many minutes a day? Mm. I think there are a few people that are so overwhelmed by the trauma or the, the physical pain. It's not a lack of effort. It, it's a deeper issue. But for many people, the real issue is lack of effort. Yeah. And I would challenge people. That's kind of what I've sort of seen uh, to, hey, really, give it 30 minutes a day of real effort. Listen to a, one of Giovanni's meditations. <laughs> Read his book. Mm -hmm. Listen to his podcast. Pick your teacher that you want to listen to. Uh, make yourself do the practices. Write in your workbook. Um, talk to the trauma therapist. Do the... Do the daily little practices for yourself that work for you, whatever you like to do, maybe with art or dance or movement or singing, 30 minutes a day, and then see where you are in 10 days. Give it 30 minutes a day for 10 days and then see where you are. Now, that's a great challenge. Um, in your experience, do you feel that people don't, don't do that because there is an inherent laziness because of course it takes it takes effort one of my teachers used to say practice is making natural what was not natural oh it's a beautiful way to put it yeah I, or my version would be the movement from state to trait or what's called uh deliberate to automatic you're exactly right yeah 100 percent. so in the in the beginning having compassion for yourself may may seem something that is fabricated something artificial but then if you just practice again and again and you pay attention to the thoughts of self-compassion and you let go the thoughts that say this is not natural, then eventually it becomes natural. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. Um, yeah, I think that what I'm trying to say in a funny way, even though I, I'm, I'm sure I sound like a nagging parent or a tough coach, get up off the couch. <laughs> Quit, <laughs> quit whining, start doing push-ups. What I'm trying to say is, for me, incredibly hopeful. Mm. Incredibly hopeful. It is occasionally true that even when a person does 30 to 60 minutes a day of real practice, focused on their issue, it is occasionally true, in some cases, some, it is true that their practice will not bear fruit. And usually the, there are deeper reasons than in the physical body. The body's just not healthy in some way, or there's some kind of profound uh, injury due to trauma in the person's history. But in almost all cases, the hopeful truth is that if a person actually spends 30 minutes a day marinating in the experiences they long for and fighting to help themselves have those experiences, the brain has to change for the better. And people usually will notice the results within a few days. That's hopeful. Yeah, that's exactly, that's a hopeful message because yeah, it gives them hope that they can do the practice, they can 
yeah. follow your teachings, they can apply these things and it may be hard in the beginning, maybe in the beginning they won't see any results, but if they stick to it, change is possible. I'll tell you four really blunt questions that I use as a clinician and a teacher and I apply them to myself and they're very real, they're very real questions. Number one, are you experiencing what's useful? Are you having beneficial experiences? Are you experiencing, for example, what your heart longs for, or some aspect of it, like self-compassion in this case. Is that song playing in the inner iPod or not? Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes people are not having the experiences that will really be helpful to them. Sometimes because they don't see the facts around them, that would be the basis for such experiences, like they don't see the others who actually are smiling, actually are friendly, actually are treating them like a thou, for example, they don't see the facts. Or second, even if they see the facts, they don't feel anything. They're not having the experience. So this is a very direct question. Are you experiencing what will be healing and beneficial for you? The second question is, are you internalizing that experience to produce a lasting change in your nervous system, a lasting change in your body, or not? Very often, we're People are indeed having experiences that are useful, but not learning from them. They are not healing or growing from those experiences. They are not turning those states into traits mm -hmm. that are lasting and durable inside. And it's because they're not letting in? Yeah, they are, or they are moving on really quickly from one experience to another experience. They're changing the channels, or they are letting other people distract them, or they are doubting themselves, or maybe they are pushing away the beneficial experience they long for, for because they're afraid of it, or they are uncomfortable due to the other feelings or desires it stirs up. All very understandable, but mechanistically, the brain and the nervous system and the body are physical. And there are many, many people who practice mindfulness of the body, but do not really uh, face the implications of the physical body. It's hardware. How do you change the hardware? And it starts with what state of software is occurring in the moment. What's the state of being? Mm -hmm. Especially what's the conscious experience the person is having, right? So you start there. And then exactly right, is that experience, is that state producing any change of trait, any lasting change of neural structure and function? That's the second blunt question. And I see routinely, and including many mindfulness teachers, many therapists, many coaches, many people, we're good at indu inducing states. We're really good at helping people have experiences. And we're, mm -hmm. there's plenty of, that's easy. Watch a TED talk, you'll start having experiences. Watch a cat video, you're gonna start having experiences, right? Uh, let's see, you know, do, we don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Fine, you're having experiences. How many of them are producing a lasting change in your body that stays with you after the uh, experience has passed away? Very, very little. So that's the second tough question. Third question is, as you grow these traits inside, are you using them? Yeah. Are you deliberately drawing upon them? For example, if you're growing the trait of self-compassion, are you using it or growing the trait of mindfulness? Many people, there's a lot of research on mindfulness-based stress reduction programs or similar kinds of trainings. A large fraction of people who go through those programs will describe uh, short-term gains. So over the two months of the program, let's say, 
they've increased the trait of mindfulness as a kind of resting state or or a general attitude. But two, three, four, six, 12 months after the program, that trait has faded away and they're not using it. There's been no lasting change. It's not everybody, but it's a, it's a substantial group of people. Think, so think about those people. They actually increase the trait. Like, for example, maybe we, we increase the trait of skillfulness with other people, but under pressure when we're angry. Are we actually reaching down inside to pull up what we know is the higher road or we know is the more skillful way to deal with this other person? So that's the third tough question. Third blunt question. And the fourth question is, are we helping our traits to uh, move forward automatically over time? So that just like you said, they what starts out as unnatural or seemingly artificial or manufactured starts feeling increasingly natural and even unconscious uh, in the way it just moves forward in us. So those are the four questions. You know, are you having states that are useful? Are you turning them into traits? Are you deliberately using your beneficial traits? And are your beneficial traits be operating increasingly automatically? Right. Right. That, now that's a really useful theory because, as you said, and I think you articulate this really well, it's one thing to to develop that superpower and it's the other thing to really use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, it's funny. Like I used to have a business consulting background and there was a saying that the most expensive piece of equipment you have is the one that's not making you any money. <laughs> you're not using it, right? What's the it's the tool that you're not using? That's the one that really costs you the most. And uh, so I think that's a very important point. So which of your books would you recommend a person to read if he wants to, to learn more about this particular um, framework and these four questions? Well, I think especially for people, for example, who are really engaged with live and dare, I love that, including the, the word dare, to be brave, to be willing, mm -hmm. to take a chance, to run the experiment, just to approach life as a, like a child would, as an incredible playground full of experiments. And there are no bad experiments. All of them are opportunities for learning. So in that context, I think I would really recommend uh, my book, Hardwiring Happiness. I think it really is the fundamental manual for how to grow into being the person you long to be. How do you help yourself become who you long to be, including how do you clear away what hides your true nature? Yeah. So hardwiring happiness, I would recommend that one. And at the core of it, including for people, I think in your community who are uh, interested in this kind of thing. At the core of that book is a real appreciation of the Buddha's second and third noble truths, mm -hmm. the truth of craving as the primary engine of suffering in us, including subtle forms of craving, and the truth of the end of craving, the possibility of the end of craving, even while living in the middle way, as you said earlier, even while living a very engaged householder life. So deep structure of that book, Hardwiring Happiness, it's about number one, growing psychological resources to meet our primary needs for three things, safety, satisfaction, and connection. 
So it's about growing resources that are lasting inside us to meet those needs. And the second thing is that the book's about repeatedly internalizing experiences of needs met so that gradually you build up what is an unshakable core of resilient well-being inside you, equanimity, a happy equanimity, so that as you move through life and you deal with its waves and its challenges, you are not uh, pushed into the red zone of craving, and you can live in the green zone of resilient well-being as you face your life. And that's not complete enlightenment to be sure, but it's a lot of help for it in this transition from the second to the third noble truths. Yeah, for sure. It's it's more than 10% happier. That's, that's really well said. Being 10% happier is great, but why stop there? Why stop there? Why not play with all the toys? <laughs> and why, it's like your spirit. That's great, Giovanni. Your spirit is to dare. Why not dare to be more than 10% happier? Dairy for me, it's key. It has ever been key in my life because I feel that without the courage to step outside of our comfort zone of trying something new and of really putting things to practice and going against the stream, both in ourselves and in our life, if we don't have that, then really our living is really limited. That's beautifully sad. Yeah, I have a, a, a way of saying that uh, that people can learn more about called risk the dreaded experience, because the experiences we avoid having mark the bars of our invisible cage. They bound the space of our lives. And so when we were young, or maybe in certain situations as an adult, we needed to live small and avoid certain terrible experiences. But now, usually as adults, we can afford to risk the dreaded experience in small careful steps so that we are pushing out and the results of that are to push out the bars of our invisible cage one millimeter at a time one inch at a time once in a while 10 feet they move out but step by step by step then you can live in a much larger and freer space in your own life yeah i love that to be clear we would not choose to be sad or choose to feel hurt or disappointed. But that's really different from living in a way that uh, avoids any risk of those experiences, any chance of experiences. Yes. Yeah. The experiences we are unwilling to risk having mark the invisible bars of the cage that surrounds our life. They mark the boundaries of the size of life we are willing to have. Mm, love that. Now, coming back a little bit to the topic of um, intimate relationships. In your audio series, The Neurodharma of Love, you speak about the neuropsychological foundation for lasting love. Can you explain that term a little bit? Oh, it's a big topic, but the really, really short version is to appreciate that we are designed by evolution to be very loving, but we are also designed to be very affected by other people in a way that makes us uh, create a smaller and smaller cage in which we live. 
And a, and a different way to put that is to refer to the metaphor I know that you've heard of the two wolves that live inside the heart, one of love and one of hate. And so from a neuroevolutionary standpoint, it's really important to respect the power of both wolves, including the wolf of hate, the wolf of aggression, and the wolf of envy and jealousy and feeling inadequate, all of those wolves. It's important to really appreciate them. Neurologically, first, it's to be accepting of and respectful of the ways that your life has affected you. Many people are embarrassed about the ways that their childhood has affected them. It's not your fault. We are designed to learn from those experiences. And so it's important to see them in a, in a neutral and clear way mm-hmm. and to not add the second dart uh, in the Buddhist uh, metaphor of self-criticism or shaming yourself for being affected in those ways first. Second, these days, when you mm-hmm. have opportunities, 30 minutes a day, 10 seconds at a time, to uh, rest in the states of experiencing today what was missing when you were young or what would have been really helpful to experience previously. When you have those opportunities today, do not waste them on your brain. Neurologically, really, really, really help your brain uh, be affected by them, in part out of a recognition of what scientists call the brain's negativity bias. Mm -hmm. The fact that it is designed to be very affected by experiences of rejection, abandonment, disrespect, loss, especially when we're young. So to compensate for the impact of those negative experiences, the second big takeaway from really understanding the physical neurology of love is to appreciate the real importance today to value and take into yourself healthy relationship experiences of various kinds, including whether it's flowing into you or flowing out of you. Those are really, really important opportunities. Third thing, neurologically, is to appreciate the ways in which our feelings of love are very entwined with the visceral core of the body. And that has to do with uh, what is now understood as polyvagal theory or the social engagement system. In other words, the ways in which our capacity to sustain the strong heart of feeling, let's say, lovingly connected while also taking care of ourselves. To say it a little differently, to be able to sustain the healthy intersection of me and we, it is important to have a relatively calm and balanced visceral core, which means especially the heart and the lungs. Because those systems, which are regulated a lot through the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system, are very uh, involved with our social experiences. And if the visceral core is upset, if it's disturbed and rattled, it is hard to keep treating other people as a thou. If your visceral core is disturbed and by what people have done to you or by your own memories from childhood and you're upset with other people, it is hard to stay in the green zone with them. So training in uh, calming the visceral core, 
working with what's called heart rate variability. It's a whole area to explore. That uh, also really, really, really um, is uh, going to be helpful for people to be able to stay in the strong heart even when you are in high pressure, real world, tough situations. So those would be the three things I would really emphasize from the underlying neuropsychology of love. Respect the ways that you are affected naturally by your experiences, including the ways that, that uh, has, those have fed the wolf of hate inside you. Second, really, really look for opportunities every day to feed the wolf of love. And third, train the visceral core in the, into the green zone again and again and again and again and again. Great. Rick, I feel that you have given us a great amount of value, and I'm sure Liv and their uh, listeners will cherish this interview. Thank you. It's been a true pleasure for me, Giovanni. You're a great guy and a deep teacher. Thank you. Deep teacher. Thank you. Yeah. Now, one final question. If you could send an email to every English-speaking person on the planet, with a single sentence that summarizes your message and teaching. What might that be? Mm. Oh boy, I think that's a fantastic, um, really great question. And a version of that for me, if I could say it, would be to ask people um, a related question, which is if you could recommend that a critical mass of people on this planet, like uh, a billion people, do for five minutes every day. If you could recommend something mm. that everyone do for five minutes a day, what would it be? It's a close cousin to what you've said. So if I could send a sentence to everyone, well, it, it really has to do with thou all beings, if I were to say it in three words, thou all beings. Mm -hmm. Thou is a verb. And if I could add a second part to that sentence, it would be thou all beings, including your adversaries. Mm. Nice one. Thank you. Thank you. I think if people actually did that, if, it, if they truly did it, it would change the course of history. I mean, we are enormously tribal creatures. In our evolutionary history, the tribe had just 50 people in it. Most hunter-gatherer bands have only 50 people. They average about 50 people. And just think about that. And only until the last 10,000 years of our 300,000-year history as Homo sapiens, our anatomically modern humans, uh, with basically skulls the current size, uh, only in the last 10,000 years, out of 300,000, have we lived in groups larger than 50 or so people most of our lives. And before our own species arose, for another 2 million years before that, our ancestors were manufacturing stone tools, also living in small bands of 30 to 50 people. And so that's the natural size of a tribe. And then inside that tribe, uh, you would have smaller groups, family groups, or couples, or individuals. So we have a very strong tendency for the circle of us to shrink quickly to very small groups, including ultimately just 
one person inside it yourself. And so we are very prone to treating anybody outside that circle as an it. Mm-hmm. And that strategy was biologically successful. Treat those within the circle as thou's, treat those outside the circle as its. That is a best odds strategy for passing on genes back in the Serengeti planes. But today, it's leading the planet to the brink of destruction. And so for me, it's, it's in light of this evolutionary history spanning hundreds of thousands, actually spanning millions of years. It's in light of that history that is profoundly important to thou all beings, especially your adversaries. Think about how our presidents and our leaders, the police, the people of the world treat each other if they actually took on the personal practice of thou all beings. Mm. You can disagree with someone. You can also believe that justice should happen to someone. You might even potentially in your moral compass, believe that force must be used uh, for the sake of the greater good, while at the same time holding that other being in your heart and remembering that they too, just like you, want to live, Mm. want to enjoy good food, love their children too, Mm. and uh, they too are a thou behind their eyes. I like that. I like that. Well, this interview is a little bit of a beginning, so people get inspired to live more by that message. Well, I, it's an ongoing practice, too, and I try to do it myself. And it's really powerful to observe your own mind, how rapidly you start sliding into itting another person. For example, when you just want to push your own position. Mm you just want to prove that you're right or make them recognize that they were wrong or uh, get them to do something that they don't actually really want to do. Uh, so it's, it's really quite profound as a regular practice to watch the movement in your mind from the frame of I thou to the frame of I it. And within seconds, you can move into and out of those two frames with the same person in the, in the middle of the conversation. That's real-time mindfulness. It's a very granular kind of real-time mindfulness and very useful to watch. Being really attentive. Yeah, and to call yourself again and again, to develop to, to thouing others so that over time you develop the trait of thouing others, mm. even your oppressors. Doesn't mean that you agree with them or forgive them even but you can still sustain that as a trait. And and more and more, it just operates automatically as you grow it inside your heart. Yeah. Then even when strength, even when, when force needs to be used, it comes from a different place. That's right. That's right. Thank you very much for, for being here. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Giovanni. I really appreciate the chance to do this with you. Thank you very much. Thank you.